Welcome to the South Mims U podcast. In this episode, we're back in our Department of Corporate Development to talk to Professor Yanis Yaniparu. He's a fierce critic of modern corporate management. Not so long ago, we talked to him about research which showed that a baboon could outperform the average CEO. That certainly caused a stir. Now we're back to discuss not just one new groundbreaking insight, but two. Mr. Woolpack? Uh, uh, it's Woolpert. Mr. Woolpack, Yanis will see you now. Please remove your shoes. Oh, oh, oh okay. Um, this lift smells like, uh, oh, it's, is that smoke coming out of the ceiling? Oh, oh my. No, no, that's, that's incense. It's to calm and open the mind to curiosity and wonder. Oh, right. I thought the lift was on fire. Mr. Woolpack, please enter into the spirit of corporate awakening. Um, I'll try. Ah, work! How the devil are you? Oh, actually, it's Woolpert. Um, I'm well. Um, oh, what a what a wonderful space! But uh, no jacuzzi. Uh, I thought you always held your meetings in your jacuzzi. That's where we interviewed you last time. Well, I've eschewed the pleasures of hot bubbles since my facelift. Too much moisture does terrible things to taut youthful skin. I suppose it does. You, I mean, you do look young, um, vigorous. Half my age. Well, all of those things, yes. Good, 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 good. Sit, sit. Oh, oh, uh, where? Oh, the Ottoman is very sensuous. It's 18th century from old Istanbul. Oh, okay. Right, right. Uh, th- <coughs> thanks. I'm surprised that a university can afford such luxury. You forget, Wilmot, that the corporate development department is not part of the university. We have strong links very strong with the university of course but we're we're not actually part of it for well several good reasons tax benefits perhaps perhaps amongst other um loopholes and what's that strange um, barometer style digital um, meter thing over there it's a kind of dial with a needle which is slowly yes no it's slowly rising is it some sort of kind of pressure gauge I suppose it is, in a way. It's what we call the meter. Just the meter. It produces a readout in real time of all our combined, um, let's call them interests, worldwide interests and positions, and it calculates them into one economic barometric measurement. Oh, so the barometer, the, the meter, shows exactly what you own and what it's worth? It does. Do you find that intimidating? No, uh, well, maybe a little. Yeah, gently intimidating guests is, I confess, one of its functions. Especially when the numbers rise steadily. We're rolling it out to boardrooms around the world soon. You see this device? It looks like an Apple Watch or or a Fitbit. It's a wealth bit. A wealth bit? Instead of counting my steps, it counts my personal profits. I can tell at a glance how well I'm doing. And uh, how well are you doing? Well, have a look. But I must demand your silence as to the exact number. Oh, of, of course. I'll just take a... Oh, my God! Is that... that 
No, that can't be. Please don't say anything while we're recording. I never realised that a university professor could be so rich. My department is not part of the university, remember? Just affiliated. Well, sorry, but this luxurious office is, well, not unusual, given your wealth. But can I ask, why are you, uh, naked? Ah, let me stand up. No, please don't. But there's, there's no need. No, no, there... no, when I stand up, you will see there is no cause for alarm. Oh, dear. Uh, uh, oh, you're wearing a, what appears to be a kind of um, nappy? No, 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 this is not a nappy. This is a dhoti, as worn by the iconic Indian leader Mahatma Gandhi. Of course. And it's made of fine cloth, is no, it? No, 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 no. This is genuine sackcloth. The cloth of sacks. Chosen by myself, from a real sack. I think it was a coffee sack. I see. So you're wearing a dhoti made out of sacks. Can I ask one simple question? Of course. Why? Yes, it must seem a little unusual. Although this is not the reason we're having this interview, I suppose I should explain where I am. It's all part of it, after all. Thank you. As you know, this department is dedicated to investigating the, uh, the corporate sector. True. And in that process, we have discovered how to make large, huge sums of money. Indeed. Huge. Yes, huge. And as a consequence of that, we have almost by accident made huge sums of money for ourselves. Now, what I'm going to say next may sound unusual, but I promise you it explains my um, attire. Please go ahead. After a point, money becomes meaningless. Does it? I wish it did. I have a mortgage and, um, well, various commitments. Indeed. (laughs) How many alimonies? Just three. Good for you. So, please, bear with me. I'm talking concepts here. Take any one of the famous tech billionaires. They have more money than they could ever spend, but they keep working, striving for more. They could retire, but they don't. They keep on making more money. It's stopped being a necessity. It's a concept, a philosophy of life. Or maybe, like the theory of relativity, it's an idea of reality. Only they don't actually see it as such, as a concept. But that is what it is. I can see it as a concept. You are an academic. You understand concepts. I do. And what has happened to me is I have conceptualised it, come through it and reappeared out on the other side. My actual needs are small. I have no mortgage. I have no expensive tastes. If I want to, I read a book. I still read books. How quaint. And my hobby is nephology. Nephology? The study of clouds. It costs nothing. That's why it's largely unknown and unpopular. No expensive and ostentatious equipment to buy. What I'm getting at is that my outgoings are minuscule. Of course, if anything bad did happen, like an illness perhaps... Well, you could fall back on your true wealth. Exactly. But as the day-to-day goes, I don't need anything. I hardly spend any money at all. And because I regard it as a concept... It's very liberating. It also means I can look on the corporate world with an entirely detached viewpoint because I'm no longer a stakeholder in any way. Which brings us to the subject of this interview. I recently read about a CEO of a very well-known company who decided to take four months off work for family reasons. However, that begs the question, who will look after the company while the CEO is not there? Presumably the next in command, the the deputy, the, the assistant. Again, presumably you're right. And the 
assistant will earn a lower salary than the actual boss. One assumes so. Which instantly begs the question, why not have the assistant run it all the time at reduced cost to the company? Which in turn begs the question of, if the company can run perfectly well with no CEO, why have one at all? True, but all you are saying is, why pay the CEO so much? Exactly, and we've explored this subject before. We'll come back to that. English management is, broadly speaking, pretty appalling. Can you think of any examples of good management? Off the top of my head, uh, no. I have come up with an excellent one, but I've had to go back over 200 years to find it. Who? Try to guess. He did not go to private school and he did not go to university. Alan Sugar. I'm talking 200 years ago. Oh, sorry, forgot. Okay, surely even you have heard of the Battle of Trafalgar. Yeah, so you mean Admiral Lord Nelson. I do indeed. He spent pretty much his entire life at sea, so he knew his business from the bottom up. He looked after his men, so they worshipped him. He had flair and imagination, and above all, he was not one of the herd. He thought for himself. On top of that, he had a sense of duty. Well, if we're looking at the military, how about Churchill? Magnificent strategist and leader of men, but I'm talking management here. More hands-on stuff, like running a ship. Expressions like, they run a tight ship, don't just come from anywhere. Churchill made quite a few tactical mistakes in his career, which have been glossed over. Well, I would like to take issue with that, actually. I'm sure you would, but we're getting distracted. This is not about military history, this is about management. My point is that Nelson was so good because he had a combination of a brilliant mind with a detailed knowledge of his industry, if you like. He knew a man of war inside out. He knew about tactics. He knew about sailing. So? The received wisdom in a lot of modern management is to simply move CEOs from one top job to another, maybe from completely unrelated industries, suggesting that all you need to do is to be a figurehead and leave the day-to-day -day running of the business to someone else who actually knows about it. It's obvious that no one would be able to get their head round the minutiae of a large business in about two weeks. With me? Uh, yeah. Computers were introduced to make such things easier. Obviously and predictably, they've actually made it more complicated. Which brings me to the inevitable question, what do CEOs actually do? Well, your previous work suggests they're less able than the average baboon, so I'd say not much. Indeed, not much. My research findings still hold. But now my research is confirmed. How so? I asked them directly, and they told me not much. But they do something, don't they? Broadly speaking, they go to meetings. As far as we can see, the amount of the day spent in actually thinking about anything is minute. Essentially, they go from room to room consuming biscuits of varying quality, which prompted the publication of our own slim volume, The Psychology of Biscuits. You will never look at a chocolate digestive the same way again. And what about the pandemic? Changed nothing. A hiatus. They had to consume their own biscuits, hence they consumed less. Why spend your own money on biscuits? OK, but I, I don't see where this is going. I can now reveal that we propose abolishing the role of the CEO entirely. Entirely? Entirely. Every one of them. And how on earth can you do that? Easy. We're going to provide our own very much cheaper versions and then simply rent them out to companies for as long as they need them. If you think about it, it's just a simpler version of what already happens. But where'd you get them? What about all their qualifications, the letters after their names and so on? You forget we're affiliated to a university. We simply invent the qualifications and give them to them doctorates and so on. But you can't do that. I mean, you'll get found out. I promise you we won't. We've already established that most, if not all, of their time 
time would be spent chairing meetings. Anyone can do that. If they do get into a sticky situation, they can refer the problem back to us. So will you take anyone off the street? Sorry, sorry, forgive me, no. We won't be doing that. We'll be running a course which ends with a PhD, and only graduates of the course will be used for the... Um, acquire a CEO scheme. The course will be only open to men and women who look like CEOs and sound like CEOs. So really they're just actors? In essence, yes. And the course itself? I mean, you said that's to PhD level, right? It's a fast-tracked PhD. Well, how fast? Three weeks. I mean, it's all relatively simple stuff. Elocution, how to tie a bow tie properly, how to address a bishop, Usual stuff for CEOs. But I thought you said they just chaired meetings. About 98% of the time. The course covers the other 2%. They may not even need it, but it's there if they do. And you really think this will work? We know it will. We conducted trials. Now, do you know this man? Here's a picture. Uh, oh, of course I do. It's... Um... Play, play, please! No names. Sorry, but, I mean, he's head of... Uh... Edit that out. So you're saying that he is... Well, one of our graduates, yes. So he's just chairing meetings then? Well, that's all he does. The company had the success it did despite him rather than because of him. But that's pretty much par for the course. We're simply rationalising what is there already. That's only half of it. There's more? Yes, but this is the next project. It's still in the pipeline. Well, please. OK. Do you like meetings? You know departmental meetings, that sort of thing. Not not one-to-one stuff. No, I hate them. But one of the nice things about this job is that I get to go to as few as possible. Most people hate meetings. Our research suggests that most people see them as irritating obstacles to getting their work done. Well, sounds about right. One often cited issue was that just when a tedious meeting is drawing to a close and everyone can escape, some idiot will ask a last-minute question and hold things up even longer, usually to draw attention to them. Oh, I've seen that happen a few times, I can tell you. Now, the pandemic of 2019 to 22 made things worse. Online meetings were much easier to arrange as people did not have to go to a specific place but could just be included in the meeting wherever they were. The main complaint was that people were co-opted into meetings when they didn't even need to be there. Yes, I've heard of that a lot. And that not much is ever decided at meetings but in one-to-one discussions in smoke-filled rooms afterwards. Well, rooms that used to be smoke-filled. OK, so much, so obvious. Our next step, and it's still very much on the drawing board, is to do something about it. Well, please expand. Our process is like this. Meetings seldom, I stress seldom, achieve anything. And I also stress usually call to pander to the ego of the person who called it like the CEO or ranks descending below. Basically, it's so they can display their power and influence and actually see the people they have power over, either in the flesh or online. Well, so far so good. We know that CEOs spend their lives going to meetings and we have effectively disposed of CEOs. So, it would seem that the real remaining purpose of a meeting is as a kind of marker of a process. A rubber stamp on a decision. Accordingly, we're going to abolish them and replace them with a real rubber stamp. Simpler, cheaper, easier. How on earth are you going to do that? An algorithm. Let me explain. Years ago, when you applied for a job, you would fill in a form and go for an interview. Now that's been replaced by closer questioning, psychological tests and so forth. Tell me about it. The hoops I had to jump through to get this gig. Not to mention 
No, actually, I won't mention it. Yeah, exactly. Now, we are simply extending that. Employees will be subject to an exhaustive test in which they will react to several hypothetical scenarios, and this will be continually updated. It will be linked to a lie detector sensor. Do those exist? Not yet, but give us a year or two. So, basically, each employee will have a kind of file which knows all, and I mean all, about them. Well, how does that help abolish meetings? This is addressed to the few meetings which actually do achieve something at some level. Go on. All the person who wants the meeting needs to do is feed the question or questions that the meeting is there to address into the system. Then they enter the files of the people they would like to attend and you know everything they would have said and in a fraction of the time. You have a virtual meeting with a virtual decision without the disruption of the real thing. Really? Let me show you. On the screen there... Uh, what screen? Under that picture from the Kama Sutra. Oh, I wondered what that was. Energetic little position, don't you think? Oh, uh, yes. Now, yeah. now, now. You'll see multiple faces on the screen. That was what the meeting using Zoom or Teams would have looked like had we invited all the participants. It's a big meeting. The meeting was about whether to add to the vegetarian options in a staff cafeteria at a large multinationals HQ in London. They needed that many people to make the decision. They thought they did, but we fed all the data into our accelerated meeting algorithm. Watch. We carried out a bit of research. It's referred to in the slides. And there's the decision in five seconds. Oh, let me have a look. It says three additional vegetarian options to be added. Vegetarian moussaka, spinach and goat's cheese flan and mock meat tamales. If all those people had been in that meeting, it would have taken weeks to get to that outcome. Well, that's genius. No wonder you're doing well. Wait a minute. But what about human contact? What about it? Well, some people do like meetings, you know, to, to meet other workers in the same position to gossip and so on. I'm afraid you are living in the past. That has mostly gone. Everyone lives through their phone and its apps now. Mm, true. Some large firms are having to train young people to actually speak on the phone because they can only communicate through text. And obviously phone access to companies will be eventually phased out. It's too expensive, too many awkward questions get asked. We are simply swimming with the tide, but as usual, we'll be first on the beach. <laughs> Did you make that up? That's, that's a great new business cliche. Yes, I came up with it the day I put the sackcloth on. And no, you can't use it. I have exclusive rights to all merchandise. Oh, well, well, that's not a surprise. Well, that's been fascinating, Yanis, and I hope you don't use that technology to speed up the making of these podcasts, because then I'd be out of a job. Mm. And you with a mortgage and uh, three animonies. Well, time to end the podcast before you get inspired. Uh, thank you very much, dear listeners, for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>